Ladies and je ladies, 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 please step back. Security, help me out here. Can we get some American police over here, please? I just want to get. Is that Raylene? Is that you? You weren't invited. Get off me. I said, get off me. I'm not even sorry. Guards, we're almost there. The podium, I can see it. Jesus, it feels like I'm more popular than Joel Osteen at a Colgo convention. You bugger off, Beyonce. Is this thing on? Look, thank you all. Thank you, everybody. I apologise if I'm sweating like a priest at a primary school, but ladies, you didn't make it easy for me to get up here off the red carpet. Right, so... So I called this press conference today for several reasons. As of the 21st of October 2015, I'm... getting married. To the lady friend, the beautiful Isabel. Yes, 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 I know. It's been three years and three weeks since we've been together, and rather than continue to live in sin, I put a ring on it. Look, it's been over for ages, Beyonce. Deal with it. Isabel is, is twice the woman you are, the love of my life, and she's far better at Candy Crush than you ever were. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but today simply isn't about you. Today is a celebration, and I'd like to welcome to the stage a few of my friends to wish me well. Ray Comfort, a few words. I find it very disappointing. Hmm. Pastor Dr. James David Manning, well-intentioned, supportive commentary. Sexual... Fluid. Baffling. Joel Osteen, your thoughts? Thanks, Joel. Reza Aslan, anything to add? Nobody seems to care. Hmm. Pat Robertson, anything sensible to contribute? Well, the answer is no. I didn't think so. Brian Fisher, any final advice? Demonize her. Time for your meds. Gentlemen, I very much appreciate your support on this bold new adventure. I did just want to mention that we're not accepting any toasters or saucepans, but supporting the show at patreon.com slash herdmentality is the best way for you to help out not only the newlyweds, but also women in developing countries, because 10% of this goes to helping their education. For example, Zana in Armenia, Lena in Lebanon, and Liliana in Nicaragua all received support from this show because the listeners contributed towards the production. <sighs> A quick shout out and thanks for your support to Philip and Frankie. I win, they win, you win, we all win. Except you, Beyonce. Everyone else, thanks for your support. It means the world to me. So enjoy the show and I'll see you next month after the honeymoon. Questionable Adam signing off. We're going to the Barrier Reef for weeks, living on a boat, snorkeling, finding Nemo, getting skin cancer, using contraception. This is my pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Actually, that was a pretty crap wind-up. Let's do that one again. <laughs> Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Joining me, I have at God doesn't without the apostrophe. James, Lindsay, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Extra good. So let's just nail your credentials up front. 
What have you done in terms of previous work? I have written a couple of books that, since you mentioned my Twitter handle, some of the Twitter folks will have seen. Uh, God Doesn't We Do was my first book, and I wrote a second book about infinity and God called Dot, Dot, Dot a couple of years ago. If we're talking credentials, I have a PhD in mathematics and a background in the physical sciences. (laughs) And how does one define infinity? Uh, Infinity is actually defined. I wasn't expecting to get asked math. Um, (laughs) Infinity is actually defined the cardinality of a set that has the property that if you remove one element, you don't change the cardinality of the set. So could you put a number on it? No, that's the point. (laughs) But we're here talking about your new book that's coming out, I understand, 1st of December this year? That's correct. And it's called Everybody is Wrong About God. It turns out I'm one of those everybodies. I think pretty much everybody is one of them. And what better place to discuss that than the herd mentality? Because we're all running off in different directions and trying to organize the, inverted commas, atheist community, inverted commas, and all this terminology is is wrong. And you nail quite a bit of this in the book with some pretty troublesome terms that we're using, like atheist, theist, and God. And in fact, there's what a whole chapter, a hundred pages, more about half the book is denoted to finding out exactly what God is. And, and God is something. Right. I think that's really important, actually. We have a lot of people talking about this concept, the concept God, We have a lot of people talking about theism, atheism. It's fairly big. It's also getting a little bit sticky. The conversation, as you said, runs in lots of directions. We call it, as you said, inverted commas, atheist community. There there are probably at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen of those that don't agree with one another, which we might see as being like denominations if we wanted to. And I think it's time we change the conversation about God by trying to understand what that word means. And the word God, look, by the end of it, there's about 500 different meanings for God, and you break them all down in painstaking detail. One of the other terms that is problematic is atheist, because the term itself does several things. Yes, the the term atheist uh, references theist directly. It It is without theism is what atheism might mean. That's one issue, because it then discusses the concept of God in the terms of theism, which I think are the wrong terms. In fact, the terms of theism are mythological. And since they're mythological, they're really beneath serious consideration. We should be talking about it a different way. We would not talk, most serious people today would not talk about Zeus or Poseidon in terms that that treat those characters as anything other than characters in a mythological story. I want to nail down, it's not that I've originated this idea that, that God is a mythological construct. I mean, people have been talking about that for a long time. If we understand what the myth represents, though, it's like pulling the curtain back and seeing the naked emperor for what he is. You referenced throughout that atheism is victorious. We've already won the fight, and that's that subsequently makes it irrelevant. That's probably one of the more controversial points that I will raise, that atheism is victorious, because obviously lots of people still believe. And so it's worth noting that when I say that atheism is victorious, I say that it has won the intellectual battle. Philosophers, for instance, have absolutely no business engaging in this ongoing squabble about whether or not God exists in some philosophical sense, because that battle has been lost. The The best arguments for God are bad, and they've been shown to be bad. And so what 
keeps coming out and it will continue to keep coming out for as long as serious thinkers believe. And there will be serious thinkers that believe for a long time, probably. They will continue to come out with arguments, but I don't think we really need to address those. And like I talked about in the book, as an example, if you look at how Sean Carroll, the the cosmologist from, from Caltech, dealt with William Lane Craig last year in his debate in, in Louisiana. Mm. A two-hour so, debate, by the way, and go and check it out. Just punch those into YouTube and give it a watch. It's pretty good. It's very good. And it's very good because Carroll holds essentially a post-theistic position as opposed to an atheistic position. Whether or not a philosopher would label Carroll an atheist is is really immaterial. He's talking about theism as if it is a thing in the past, as is, and he calls it essentially an immature model, and that's a correct way to think. And if since it's not a mature model or a mature way to think about the world or the universe, we really shouldn't treat it that way. I mean, you, you argue in the book that well, we need to do some rebranding of our own from atheist. What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me and for a lot of other people when I think of the term atheist now is squabbling, arguing, often squabbling and arguing about stuff that just doesn't need to be squabbled about and argued about. You know, what's the right way to be an atheist? How do you be a good atheist? What social programs or, or movements or agendas do you have to sign on to be? And this is this is a category mistake besides anything else. But at a deeper level, and this is pretty important. Atheism sets itself up by the very word as standing in opposition to theism. And yeah. if we don't understand what people who believe in God mean by the word God, and therefore what theism represents to them, we're going to miss the point that atheism is inherently branded as standing against theism, which for people who believe often means very important things like their values and the way they understand the world. And yeah, I mean, you, what, you, you coined the term in the book, when the theist hears atheist, they, as a word, what they feel that the atheist, that, that term means is, I reject your core values. Right. And getting into that requires quite a lot of understanding of religious and moral psychology. But my line of thought is that religions are, first and foremost, what are called moral communities. And moral communities are obviously defined by a set of moral values. And those values are central to the identities of the people in those communities. And so when you have a moral community that is organized around values that are caught up in the term God, and then somebody comes along and says, I don't believe in God, what somebody is going to hear is, I don't believe in your values. That may not be all they hear, but it is certainly a big part of what they will hear. And so you automatically will have an us versus them line of thought that arises because you're stating by saying, I don't believe in your God, which often is intricately related to their values. You're saying that you reject those values at a deep level. And it's very important because if people believe that God represents what makes their morals meaningful, they aren't separating between that idea and morality itself. And so it's a very complicated issue that is going to get taken very personally. And we see exactly that kind of response when people are confronted with, with this belief. In fact, we see that, I don't know if this has changed since the poll that got so many headlines a couple of years ago, but atheists are trusted roughly as well as <laughs> rapists. For instance, why would that be the case? Well, if people who believe in God see atheists as people who reject their values, why should they trust them? So what it, it, what terminology would be better employed in this circumstance? 
I don't think we should call ourselves anything. We're people. Fair enough. But you do quote a couple of things in the book or, or at least give the reader a couple of ideas as to uh, which terminology to use when engaging with somebody who is a believer. Right. If somebody, for instance, asks me if I'm an atheist now, I actually go straight to saying, no, I've, I've really kind of gone post-theistic. And I expect fully that I'll have to explain what that means is and that what I go on to say is that I think that the the terms of the debate about God's existence are are too mistaken to get wrapped up in arguing about them and that's sort of what characterizes atheism. And so I don't really identify that way anymore. If somebody on the other hand asks me if I believe in God, I just say no and I leave it at that. Well, okay, let's let's bring it back to the, the book. It's available for pre-sale. How's it going? It seems to be going really well. Um, surprisingly, right now, I just happened to check while I was waiting for your call. It's hit number eight on Amazon's hot new releases in atheism, number one in their hot new releases in agnosticism, and it's number two in agnosticism and atheism combined in Amazon UK, and number two most wished for in Canada. That's, on, on Amazon Canada. It's a fantastic so it's really doing result. well. Yeah. And look, I strongly encourage listeners of the show to go and have a look at it because if you brand yourself as somebody who's prepared to change their views, I think this is the book that's going to do it. It's going to adjust the way you process the terminology, I think, to perhaps better empathize with the other person you're, with whom you're speaking because given that when somebody says God, the atheist believes one thing, the theist believes another, and we shoot off in two different directions, which is one of the reasons that the atheist experience does so well at debating, and that's really the crux of it, debating, is what do you believe and why? And you can get down to exactly what that person believes. But this gives a very broad context. But there was a chapter in there, or a part of a chapter that I found was rather interesting, and it was entitled uh, Being Good at Atheism or something along those lines. So what's what's the problem with trying to be good at atheism? There are a bunch of problems, but the main problem is what does that even mean? How can you be good at a not thing? How can, for instance, if we consider theism is believing in God, and maybe if you want to say that it's also tied up in following religious precepts or whatever, to analogize, we can think of that like playing a sport. And I think I used golf in the for some reason i'm drawn to golf and i've used golf in the book i believe or, or tennis one or the other and so you can be also you can you can practice or study golfing and the technique i don't golf so i would be completely lost with the terminology there mm-hmm. um so i would identify in a sense as a non-golfer but who does that nobody says james is a non-golfer they oh, just I ask me i say that you're a non-golfer a fantastic non-golfer Actually. Exactly. How and what makes me so good at being a non-golfer? Oh, your complete ambivalence towards it. <laughs> there we go. And so that's that's sort of the crux at it, though. To be good at atheism typically actually means, when the person says it, to be good at things that are typically associated with atheism. Uh, secularism, uh, promoting secularism, is a is a big, big component of that for pretty clear reasons. And then, you know, subscribing to humanist ethics, although that's not necessarily a requirement. But it also gets tied into, for instance, right now, many people who self-identify as as atheists, but not all, are social progressives. Or even many are becoming what is getting called increasingly the regressive 
left <laughs> and the regressive progressives. And these people have tacked onto whatever atheism is several different agendas, whether those be related to, to social justice or mm. feminism or whatever else. And while those may be very important in their own rights and, and their own debates, they're not atheism. And the, I think that the desire to cobble things onto atheism is central to the fact that people identify as atheists. They take it as a part of their their self-identity and then want to become good at that, which is the exact same kind of moral community building that we see that gives rise to the religions, which is yeah. why when these groups of, of atheists sometimes get very motivated, they start taking on more and more behaviors that look more and more, if we want to be technical, quasi-religious, but they look more and more religious in, in character. And this is why they're operating with the same... Herd mentality? Yes, a herd mentality. Very much so. Do you know that that's and exactly so, why this podcast doesn't have atheist in the title? Because I found it interesting that I think everyone can be a part of some sort of herd mentality one way or the other. So whilst it's taking a rather critical look at religion, it doesn't focus specifically on that because we the atheists get it wrong quite a lot, as we discover in this book. Yes. And in fact, it will go a step further than that. Not only does everybody get caught up in a herd mentality, I actually think if we had to pin down, and I know philosophers and, and people like to talk about this sometimes, what makes humans human? What is it? You know, is it our ethics? Is it this? And then you start to find animals have, have ethical behavior that non-human animals have ethical behavior. And we have all these other questions. I really think given our high level of sociality that what makes humans humans is the tendency to form moral communities. And so we're always going to form them. And the trick is to avoid letting those communities become herd mentalities. Mm. One of the things I really like in the book is that the <laughs> they're great footnotes, and sometimes they're as long as the chapter themselves. They're in essence they're their own chapter, yes. and and they make they're for interesting often a reading. A little bit biting, and, and <laughs> sometimes even almost snide. Yeah, and there's look chapter six, which is called uh, "Okay, Now What," that really calls the people who currently identify as atheists to sort of rebrand themselves as post-theistic or, or at least adopt the attitude or and then use that as the debate opener and i mentioned to you off air that i'm working on a book and it's sort of the sales tactics involved after that very fact so after the debate has been opened how do you then sell a concept so that's what i'm working on but i'm thinking i might just uh, pull a whirlman and take the whole book that you've written there and put it as the introduction to mine and, and just have one footnote down the bottom thanks james there you go yes thanks <laughs> and, and well we won't talk about him so. <laughs> best avoided no i do like footnotes though i like to try to keep the flow of the text rather rather smooth and then i often think in many related concepts at once and so then some of the more uh, effervescent ones of those I like to insert as footnotes. And so there are a, num a large number of those. I do encourage anyone who reads the book to enjoy them as well. Oh, they, yeah, it's not the sort of thing you just skip over. There's so much more in there. You could go for a year and follow all the YouTube links and Twitter links and all the rest of it. It's It really is comprehensive. In that chapter, though, you use the term honesty and humility, which I I really love. I think that's a fantastic approach to be taking 
because I think, and I'm, I'm going to be touching upon this in my book, that by expressing those two characteristics and even asking in a roundabout way whether or not that other person you're discussing with, the believer, shares those characteristics, you have a bond or a commonality there from which you can work. Right. That's a very important important starting place. We've got to be honest with ourselves first, and then we have to be honest with each other if we want to have fruitful conversations. And we also have to be humble enough to realize that, well, I mean, like the title of the book says, everybody is wrong about something, um, usually lots of things. So having an attitude, and of course, this leans upon, upon our friend Pete Bogosian. Everybody should have embraced the willingness to change their mind in light of better evidence or in light of doubt or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, you mentioned, Pete, a lot of what this book is about builds on this street epistemology and a lot of the other stuff that Pete developed for his book. So it's sort of the oh, spiritual successor. Is that, a, is that a fair comparison? In a sense, uh, I actually started the seeds of it before... I saw Pete's book, so it doesn't quite follow exactly from from his writing, but I feel like it is maybe another piece that will strongly add to his method. If we understand why the people that we're talking with say we're trying to talk to somebody about beliefs that they hold, maybe about God, if we're trying to talk to them about their beliefs and we wish to get them to reconsider those beliefs, it's pretty important that we understand where they're coming from. And so... While Pete's work is brilliantly designed to instill doubt in an honest way by asking questions and seeking explanations. There's a term the, for that. That's doxastic openness? Yes. Trying to pre present doxastic, or to evoke, I guess, doxastic openness hmm. in the in the person you're chatting with. I think that there's there's very little to be gained by being almost as much in the weeds as the person you're talking to when you're having those kinds of conversations. And again, it's such a big, important point that we just really want to try to connect with the people and understand where they're coming from. It's very important that we, we should try to seek to understand what believers or anybody is trying to tell us. And in the case of people who believe in God, we do have to recognize that they're using mythological language, but we should also recognize that what they're really talking about is underlying psychological and social needs that they don't know how else to meet. Mm. And so they use God to do it. So we have to do the heavier lifting. We have to kind of, yes, in a sense, we have to put ourselves aside in a way and listen to them and try to figure out what, if we're trying to have this as a conversation, of course, I don't recommend having manipulative conversations. You should be open and honest, of course. And if their arguments or, or points hit upon places where, where, where we're confused, we should also just admit that and, and look into it together or something like that in a collaboration. We do have to put ourselves aside and we have to, if, if we think that we have the right answer and we're trying to help people to, to find right answers on their own, then, yeah, the responsibility to, to do a little bit more heavy lifting is on us. Mm. The takeaway from the book, in essence, and if I can do my very best Deepak, because I think it's the best way to convey the point in, in, in all its clarity, is adjust thinking regarding terminology for improved empathetic compatibility. Mm. That's a pretty good summary, yes. <laughs> in English, yeah, to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I think that the arguments that you make in the book are so compelling 
that I might have to update my Twitter bio for the first time since I've been doing this podcast to uh, from atheist to post-theistic. I think that's very clever. Um, but there are a couple of ways that you suggest dealing with the content uh, in order to get people to say laugh and then think. And satire is one of those. Satire is one of my favorites. Yes. Did you want to touch upon that? I think the spell is maintained by seriousness, by taking things too seriously. Anything that I feel now, I know that there are touchy subjects and, and it, it matters with, with certain individuals, but anything that's kind of corded off that, that cannot be treated as potentially funny runs the risk of becoming sacred, which psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who I also lean upon quite a lot for the book, identifies as having been given infinite value, which I then extract to say means it's been turned unquestionable. Once you start having unquestionable things, especially if they're morally charged, now you've gone down the path to ideology, and if you throw in mythological elements or some other, it gets very complicated to talk about religion in general. But if you throw in mythological elements, we're probably talking about some kind of theistic religion. So we've always got to be be ready and willing to take a step back from that and and watch ourselves in terms of of where we're choosing things that are sacred. And laughter is a fantastic way to kind of burst that bubble. And I do, of course, differentiate between satire and mockery. Mockery is to be generally avoided. Satire is hilarious and effective and useful. And it's been a point that I've read many times, for instance, that racism in, say, especially the United States, was very successfully lampooned by a number of comedians, especially the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, to where almost the jokes have mostly run their course now or they've taken on a completely different flavor because it was satirized by people like Chris Rock and mm. Richard Pryor and and Eddie Murphy and these fellows and they did a fantastic job of it. George Carlin was another great satirist and he what happened what did people say about George Carlin? He's funny but he makes you think. Mm. In other words, he gets you to laugh at stuff you don't expect to laugh about and then you start to think about it in a new way and all of a sudden you're thinking about something in a new way. Satire is a very effective means for breaking a moral taboo about thinking about something in a different way, which is exactly what we need to be willing to do is reconsider our thoughts and our ideas and our beliefs. And that applies just as much to religious beliefs. In fact, if you look at them on their face, most of them are pretty hilarious. So, <laughs> Yes, they are. Yes, they are. But uh, I won't mock them. I'll just continue to satirize them. The uh, One of the points you touched on there was racism. And you differentiate between an idea. So an idea is something that in a roundabout way exists and continues to exist. But you draw the comparison to nowadays we're sort of a post-racism society in the same way that we're a post-theistic society. Is that right? Fair? And then this is a very good way to draw an analogy between the, or to, to draw a distinction between the intellectual side of the, the thing and the cultural side of the thing. So I'm in the Southeastern United States, whether I sound like it or not. And racism, I can attest, is alive and well here. And, um, Mostly, though, behind closed doors until it accidentally leaks out. In other words, even the racists here know it's not okay to be racist in public. Mm. And so while there's still racism and it's still a problem and it clearly, you know, in many huge profile things that are, are all over the news now, it's still clearly a big problem in the United States. That problem is cultural. It's no longer an intellectual thing. Racism doesn't have intellectual legs to stand on anymore. Nobody that's serious or that's seriously considered really supports racism anymore. And it's just 
they of course shouldn't. There's nothing there for it. That argument took place in the United States for hundreds of years before people finally decided we didn't need to argue that anymore, really. We just need to start making it less and less socially acceptable and... And more and more of an embarrassment to be associated with. Yes, yes, exactly. And so... The intellect, what I'm saying about theism is the intellectual fight, the philosophical squabbling. It's not really even philosophical because the difference between philosophy and, and what theism is doing, which some people call pseudo philosophy and is mythology, is that philosophy actually attempts to hook onto the real world first and then see what happens. And theology has its conclusion in mind and then attempts to find it. That's a big difference. In other words, there are things that theology is not willing to be wrong about, and that distinguishes it from philosophy. But the discussion and philosophical terms, you know, this cosmological argument or this first cause stuff, this has all been dealt with, and it's been dealt with repeatedly, and it just isn't relevant anymore. We don't need to Mm. continue that argument. The intellectual fight is done. You you actually put a date on it very nearly. Yeah. When Richard Dawkins published the book, and this is not the date, The God (laughs) Delusion, he put the words... God and delusion right next to each other in print on the cover of a widely best-selling, multiple-time best-selling book. In fact, one of the newer versions of The God Delusion is one of the books that's higher than mine on hot new releases in atheism still, some almost 10 years later. Well, I figure after a few years, people stopped just going berserk at seeing God and delusion directly next to each other, and it became, as I worded it in, in Everybody's Wrong About God, it became part of our cultural furniture. And when it became part of our cultural furniture for God and delusion to be next to each other in print, at that point, we can pretty much declare that the intellectual fight was over. I'm not saying Richard Dawkins' book did the job. I'm just saying that that was a great signpost saying, Mm -hmm. hmm, something's different because nobody's losing their minds about (laughs) – nobody serious is losing their minds about God and delusion being directly next to each other on the cover of a best-selling book anymore. And so that's that's why I think the intellectual fight has finished. But the cultural fight is going to last – and I don't like characterizing it as a fight, but in the United States – perhaps? Umpteen percent – of people, you know, nearly all, it's more umpty percent, like 80% of the people believe in God and all around the world. In other places, you know, it's near 100%. And, and then in other places like Japan, it's like 5% or something. But lots of people still believe in God. That is going to persist for a long time. But we don't have to squabble about it in the terms that they have laid out because those terms are irrelevant now. They are they are part of the infancy of our species, as Hitchens was fond of saying. Hmm. They're mythology. Hmm. So we need to get away from being good at atheism, etc. at yes. all. One final question, and it's something that mm-hmm. everybody's got a different opinion on, and you certainly discuss it in your book. Is it wrong to uproot someone's faith? Absolutely not. You're doing them a favor. It's wrong to badger and belittle them for their faith, I think, especially in light of what the book is about. If you recognize that their faith is essentially a seal that they're using to protect certain beliefs that serve very deep psychological and social needs for them in a way that they don't know how else to meet those needs, that was probably worded like an idiot, those those beliefs serve psychological and social needs, and they don't have other ways to meet those needs that are effective. That's why they rely on God. 
And this is documented in the psychology of religion literature, as I, I think I quote it in the book three or four times, as one particular observation, that if people have naturalistic explanations for things, they will choose them over religious explanations unless those threaten deeper psychological or social needs. And I think that the root of fundamentalism is that the deeper psychological and social needs are so strong that they throw away good explanations, natural explanations that are right in front of their faces to preserve their religious beliefs, like creationism is an example I use. Mm. I was going to add a thought. I agree with you. It's not wrong to uproot someone's faith. I think it's actually the right thing to do. But if you're replacing it with, say, a toolkit for critical thinking and, and give these people the ability to determine uh, real from a fiction or right from wrong yes. uh, in via these yes. mechanisms, because what it'll do is not only adjust their position in, say, their religious situation, but also whether or not they're likely to fall victim to another scam, something that is right. like marketing or the telephone scams from Microsoft or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. It uh, builds the bullcrap detector. I agree. And like I said, you know, leaning on, on Peter Boghossian's book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, that's really kind of the theme there. If you take away somebody's faith you're you he indicates that faith is a bad way to think and it is because like i said it's like a seal that protects beliefs from critical examination or reconsideration and it's helping them to think better if you uproot pieces or even all of that as you said it, it builds their bullcrap detector the more that they see that that way of thinking is not very effective i can attest to this firsthand i've got a discussion, oh gosh, it would have been 18 months and it's, it's ongoing with a listener of the show who is a theist on the other side of the world and whilst the theistic belief is still there in a sense and perhaps may always be there and that, that's fine, there's been a rapid change in her other thinking processes. So she'll sit down in church and go, hang on, what the priest is telling me here is a logical fallacy or is there a better way that I can perhaps deal with my own problems instead of prayer. Yes, and, and I think that process is, like you said, it may last the rest of her life. Um, it may be short. I think it is a drawn-out process, however, to leave a religious faith because it does so much for somebody, both psychologically and socially. It gives them a attribution scheme, if we want to use technical terminology, for things like their morals, for a sense of, of purpose in life for how the world works, which mm. I refer to as wearing Jesus-colored glasses because you see Jesus <laughs> everywhere. Once you have them on, you know, evidence for, for God is everywhere because you have Jesus-colored glasses on. And then it also gives them a community, which gives them a personal identity. It gives them a means. And this is probably much more central than I, I talk about in the book because I don't think it's the primary use of the word God, which is what I was aiming for in that long chapter, is mm. how do people use the word God? But religious beliefs, and therefore belief in God, really center upon, and it's quoted in the literature again and again, on denying death, avoiding having to cope with death. And so if somebody has existential horror about death, then they are going to have a really hard time letting go of a belief structure that insulates them from having to deal with that. Mm. All of those things that you mentioned, every one of them, I look at that from my marketing background as a cost. This is a purchase that a theist isn't prepared to make because the cost, be it socially, yes. familiarly, yes. all of these things are simply too high. So you don't 
think twice about going to the supermarket and spending $3 on a box of cereal because it's a low-cost purchase. You don't necessarily think a great deal about going and buying a, a product from a salesperson, but when we're talking belief systems, this is as big and as important as it comes, and it's the most expensive purchase people are going to make because a box of cereal lasts a week, a washing machine might last 10 years, but a way of thinking and a belief system and a structure that's for life just like herpes. right and and this particular one is built theistic ones are built directly around dealing with some of life's hardest questions why is the world the way it is what's the right way to be what's what's my meat why do i why do i exist and and what do I do about the fact that I'm going to die what does that mean I don't want to die and so you know these very deep needs and fears are are addressed whether we consider it to be like a superficial plaster or we whether we consider it to be something deeper and more legitimate they're they're addressed by religious beliefs and the idea is that that god is a mythological figure that stands in 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 a position to make it all kind of make sense Mm. if there is this all-powerful entity why not so stuff what could be done to lower the cost uh, the chapter near the end that's called called filling the religion gap. Ah, uh, yes. Ad- addresses that um, vaguely. Um, I am not a sociologist. I I don't have brilliant political or social schemes, and I don't think I'm smart enough to to prescribe how society should be. But I know that if we look around the world at societies like Sweden or the Nordic countries or Japan, we see that when these kinds of needs are being met in other ways, people tend to naturally drop their religious belief, which confirms that really important observation from psychology of religion, that if people have natural explanations, they prefer them to religious or superstitious ones, unless they threaten some deeper psychological core. So one of the most important things, especially in the United States, which is bizarrely religious, is increasing social health, by which I mean in decreasing wealth disparity, income disparity, increasing our infrastructure. The sort of thing that Jesus would be on board for, but not the Republicans. Exactly. The, you know, the kind of things that, that modern, healthy modern societies do, because it ensures a good life for their citizenry, which is what the function of a government is in the first place. So when you have a healthy functioning government doing what it's supposed to do for the people it represents or that it that it governs, it should be securing safety, opportunity, and these kinds of things that allow people not to rely on superstitious beliefs. So that's one huge aspect. Another is helping people, you know, realize that there are ways to find identity and ways to find community. And some of this needs to be nurtured. We have a more and more kind of fractured society, but there are ways to find community outside of a church. Church is almost like a cheap way to go get community. It's there. It's already built. All you have to do is kind of sign on and play along and you have babysitters and friends and and give you them have money. a way to con- conceive of yourself and others, and it, it's. But this could be accomplished by book clubs, by bowling leagues, by community uh, organizations that are like philanthropic or or service oriented. There are all kinds of things that that get people out and interacting with each other and and showing that that they do have ways to to have an identity, to have a community, to have friends, to have a to, stable to, network to fill the gap. around them. Yeah, to fill the gap. And in, yeah, in a roundabout way to lower the cost of the shock 
in uh, some changing. of these are very difficult though for mm. instance convincing people that coping with death dealing with its reality that that's going to remain high cost i think no matter what but i think maybe some eloquent writers and and cleverer people than i can at some point pin something or some things many things that help us start to see death and and it's already begun of course um but some some great stuff could get out there about seeing life through the lens of death and then learning to cope with it and maybe that involves you know better better psychological resources as well but those kinds of things are going to help lower that cost and enable people to to leave their religious beliefs behind because they're mostly irrelevant to them they don't need to rely on those to meet their psychological and social needs. They have other ways to meet those now, so they don't have to rely on God like a proxy to do that for them by mythology. Mm. So, James Lindsay, uh, author of Everybody is Wrong About God, your Twitter handle, at God Doesn't. Before we go, where can we pre-order your book? It is available at on, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I think it'll be available just about everywhere. The good books are sold, at least online. And good book it is. I absolutely loved it. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me.